Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Is blood quantum still the best way to determine enrollment? The Alaska Native Corporation, Sea Alaska, just dropped their blood quantum requirement for shareholders. And citizens of the Minnesota Chippewa tribe voted in an advisory referendum to eliminate their blood quantum hurdle. They're among a handful of tribes rethinking blood quantum to help their citizenship flourish. We'll hear more about it and take your calls after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. It was a day filled with emotion for many Indigenous people in Canada as Pope Francis made an apology for church-run residential schools. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, the long-awaited apology took place on Canadian soil. The Pope traveled to Maskawashi, south of Edmonton, Monday to the site of a former Indian residential school where he made history, begging forgiveness. Here's some of what he said through a translator. Estoy dolido. I am sorry. Pido perdón en particular. I ask forgiveness in particular for the ways in which many members of the church and of religious communities cooperated, not least through their indifference in projects of cultural destruction and forced assimilation. The Catholic Church ran 60% of the government-funded church-run residential schools. They operated from the late 1800s to 1996. Over more than a century, about 150,000 Native children were taken from their homes and forced to attend the schools. Thousands were physically, sexually, or emotionally abused, their languages and cultures stripped from them. After the Pope's apology, an Indigenous woman, tears streaming down her face, stood and sang O Canada in her Native Cree. Many Native leaders welcomed the apology, saying it might bring closure to some, but for some it would also open old wounds. George Arcan Jr. is the Grand Chief of the Confederation of Treaty Six First Nations. He says the apology is only the beginning. The wrongs of the past need to be righted. I see Pope Francis's apology today as only a first step in the Church making amends towards our people. After meeting with the Pope and hearing his words today, I believe there's a path forward. The Pope also met with parishioners of the Sacred Heart Church of the First Peoples, Canada's only designated Indigenous Church. Today he will hold an open-air Mass in Edmonton's Commonwealth Stadium. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. Lakota journalist Tim Gallego is being remembered for his dedication to Native American news and Native rights. He passed away on Sunday. South Dakota Public Broadcasting's Lee Strubinger has more. Tim Gallego was many things in the news world. He started several newspapers, including the Lakota Times, Lakota Journal, and Native Sun News. Gallego got his start in journalism during the Korean War when an editor for the base newspaper was transferred. The commanding officer saw how well Gallego typed and made him the editor. Here, Gallego in 2021 talked about his start in journalism on SDPB's In the Moment. I felt we needed to have something that would provide information and report the happenings in the schools and the tribal government and in places that weren't being uh, reported upon. So that's the main reason I started. And then I found out as I was going along that there's 
some things we could do as, as an advocate for Indian rights. Gallego's papers led an investigation into bank housing loans that prompted the Department of Justice to look into unfair practices. He also wrote extensively about boarding schools in South Dakota. We worked together both as colleagues and rivals for 40 years. That's Mark Trahant, editor for Indian Country Today. I think perhaps the greatest legacy, though, may be the number of people he inspired to become journalists. Gallego was 88 years old. Funeral plans have not been announced yet. I'm Lee Strubinger in Rapid City. The FBI announced Monday an effort to address missing and murdered indigenous people in New Mexico and the Navajo Nation. A list of 170 names has been released in an effort to improve reporting on missing indigenous people and draw attention to unsolved cases. The list can be found online at fbi.gov MMIP. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The Indian Loan Guarantee and Insurance Program has worked with lenders for almost 50 years, supporting them as they support you. Have an idea to improve your tribal economy? Information at bia.gov DCI, which supports this show. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Can blood quantum continue on indefinitely as a means to determine enrollment? That's the question that the Minnesota Chippewa tribe is in the process of deciding right now. And the Sealaska Corporation has already taken action to drop blood quantum as a hurdle established within the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. The decision means more people will be eligible to hold shares in the for-profit corporation. Two other Alaska Native corporations, Arctic Slope and Callista, previously dropped their blood quantum requirements. The issues of blood quantum and identity are almost always controversial. However, blood quantum enrollment remains the standard for the vast majority of tribes. Is there an alternative? We'll explore that question today, and as always, we'd like to hear from you. Are there rumblings in your tribe to drop blood quantum requirements? Call us, 1-800-996-2848. As always, we welcome all points of view. Joining us now from Juneau, Alaska, is Joe Nelson. He is the board chair of Sea Alaska Corporation. He's Tlingit. Joe, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Sean. Well, let's go ahead and get started, Joe. And first off, why the decision to retire, retire the blood quantum requirement for Sea Alaska? Yeah, this was a special year for all of our native corporations because we were marking our 50th birthday or 50th anniversary with these corporations and uh we we as a board thought well let's rather than just blow out the candles and the cake let, let's go ahead and engage and, and try tackling one of our you know one of our more challenging issues that we're all facing uh and mark the occasion with an action uh and and something that we feel like is meaningful because it's forward-looking rather than backward-looking 
Now, this is a, an issue that ha, has been on the burner for a, a number of years there at Sea Alaska. And um, how does the change benefit both the shareholders and the corporation itself? Yeah, the, the issue definitely has been with us for the entirety uh, of the, these organizations, these corporations, you know, were created with an act of Congress in 1971. And that's where, for us, that's where the blood quantum issue um, carried over into ANCSA. And uh, at the time, it was a pretty uh, assimilationist, the act itself. The, the, the thinking was we were going to quickly become just corporate citizens and, and be able to share and trade our stock in 20 years out. And we've been, fortunately, uh, you know, reinforcing the Native in Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act and making the law work for us. And one of those key things was amending the law to allow for our shareholders to open the rolls, because originally we weren't able to open our rolls to the, to our descendants. Um, so we amended the law, and still not all the corporations have done it yet, but we, we at Sea Alaska actually took this to a vote to our shareholders back in 2007, and in 2007, though, we maintained we still had that blood quantum requirement in there for the descendant stock. But we, we knew that this day would come when, when we would uh, be addressing the blood quantum. So it's it's we decided to tackle it. And um, for, for the, the benefit, you know, this is, uh, uh, as you mentioned, I think it's a it's a tough issue. It, it's it's a controversial issue. I think is how you referenced it. And yes, it, these are very personal for folks but as indigenous people we're collectivist and group oriented and uh there, there's no uh, better way to to reinforce our values than to invite in our grandkids uh and, and hold the door open to them so uh, I, I think that the inclusivity and the 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 values discussions that need to happen in order in order to the shareholders have this vote really um are exciting to, to really reinforce and tell the world we're, we're, we're not your usual typical corporation. We're native corporations, and we're making decisions that are going to protect our way of life for uh, generations to come. So you have to include those generations that are coming. It's just it works hand in hand there to take care of them. Joe, can you explain who exactly was being left out by the previous blood quantum requirement at Sea Alaska? Yeah, the this most recent action we took, the uh, <clears throat> resolution was was just a minor fine tuning of, of our descendant stock program that we approved in 2007, uh, and these are descendants of original shareholders who were born after 1971. Uh, they they already had a pathway in unless they didn't meet the blood quantum, the one quarter blood quantum requirement. So the the act we took this time was just to eliminate that, that one-quarter blood quantum requirement uh, that did not eliminate any of the other requirements. They still need to be 18 years old to apply. They still need to trace um, back to an original shareholder through their parents or grandparents uh, and, and establish that connection. So it's just that one-quarter blood quantum uh, requirement. And as we all know, we've we've got many people in our communities that are – Right in, right in there. So it's only two, three generations, um, okay. you know, out. So about how many people are we talking about then 
um, that that don't qualify based on that quarter one quarter blood quantum, but now could potentially become shareholders. Yeah, these are you know this is um, these statistics and these things are not an exact science, but our best estimate was that there's around up to maybe fifteen thousand eligible. We were, our current base of shareholders was twenty three thousand. Uh, and the thinking was that there's probably eligible up to 15,000, but more. But based on our, our uh, experience with the 2007 enrollment, when we opened up the descendants, uh, a couple of things. Some of those shareholders are already enrolled because they inherited a share or two, but many just choose not to enroll. So it actually was not the big wave that we expected back in 2007. So really, we, we figure, we assume we're going to anticipate um, definitely a, an influx of shareholders, but it's not going to be anywhere near that 15,000. And, uh, you know, maybe over the next 10 years, it, it'll, it'll amount to that. But over these next few years, it's really going to be probably a few thousand more shareholders that come in. Okay. So a few thousand over the, the next few years and then possibly more after that. But I understand there are worries by existing shareholders that this could dilute uh individual dividends by increasing uh, the number of shareholders, and, and that does appear to be the case. How will see Alaska address that? Yeah, there's no doubt about that. There, that there's, um, that's the main argument against doing that, is the, the dilution affects uh, not just the dividends, but the, the voting power was brought up. And the, the D stock, one, one thing to note for the descendant stock is it's not the exact same as the common settlement stock for um, the original shareholders received. And, and there's just the, there's other reasons why it's not all exactly the same. But the descendant stock is life estate stock that cannot be passed on to others. It comes back to the corporation. Uh, and so, so there's a number of things that we, we built in early on to mitigate the dilution. Um, and back in 2007, one of the biggest things that we did, because we didn't the issue, we, we could have enrolled descendants back in the, in the 90s, but it didn't happen until 2007 because we'd, we'd watched a few of the other corporations and learned and then engaged shareholders. So in 2007, we actually didn't do just the descendants. We, we uh, opened up another class of stock for elders, the e-stock. So our elders also have an additional 100 shares. Um, so that was one of the main things. It wasn't just... Um, the dilution, the, the the concern about dilution was largely the elders. So we, we our elders have an extra hundred shares. There's also the elder settlement trust, so they get a, a one-time payment when they turn 65. And the company itself, you know, our our philosophy, our belief, and our thinking is that we're going to continue to we're going to do okay because we're building a corporation, the company that's built on our values and. Things are working, so we're actually growing the revenue. And the last five years have been our strongest years in the history of our company here. So our, our intent here is to, to, to grow the pie. 
So, Joe, you mentioned these different classes of shares, and it's just like a publicly traded corporation. You have Class A shares, which are like the premier shares for like the the founders and, and high-ranking executives, and you have the common stock shares, which just regular people can invest in. So you're describing uh, these elder stock shares uh, for, for older seniors, elders in the corporation, then the common stock, and now this new class of, of descendant stock. Is it safe to say that these new shares, these new shareholders based on descendancy, Will they be entitled to fewer benefits and rights in Alaska than the existing or, or, or higher-ranking shareholders? I mean, yeah, I, I would say I would characterize it as different. I guess just a different type of benefit. Slightly, there's um, there, there are nuances in Inksa that were just hardwired into the law, and with the main primary settlement, common settlement stock, we actually receive. Uh, 7i distributions from natural resource development from all the other regions and, and see alaska we've paid in hundreds of millions that have gone out to non-see alaska shareholders over the years because of our timber program but we've recently wound that program down and now we're benefiting from resource development from other regions and that that benefit there is uh it does stand out as something that's not tied to the descendant stock uh to receive those 7i benefits so that's that's one big feature. Um, but for most of the descendants, you know, it's um, not all about the dividend. Uh, it, it's, mm-hmm. There's so many other things about the connection to, to land uh, and place. Uh, and that's just to how we are as indigenous people. Place matters and uh, the land matters and, and are protecting our way of life. You have to be practicing it. So yeah, there's so many other things that are, are variables that really... Uh, I don't know that many of the descendants are, um, you know, looking at it in a way that they're they're have-nots anymore. They're, they're excited to enroll lots of them. We're speaking right now with Joe Nelson. He's the board chair for Alaska Corporation. He's talking about uh, the change, uh, the removal of a blood quantum requirement there for shareholders at Alaska Corporation up in Alaska. Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. We'll be right back. At least two major pieces of federal legislation to protect Native culture got their start in the 1990s. It was a decade of economic and cultural growth among Native nations, and both Dances with Wolves and Smoke Signals made a splash in popular culture. We'll discuss all of those as we reflect on the 90s on the next Native America Calling. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Thanks for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. You can always reach out to us by writing in to comments at nativeamericacalling.com or leave a comment on our social media pages. For our show yesterday about Jim Thorpe, a listener named Jennifer wrote to comments at nativeamericacalling.com and said, it was very heartening to hear this episode about Jim Thorpe. I've tried looking up information on the internet, but so much of it is so negative. I'm so very glad that his history with the Olympics has been rectified. 
You can leave us your thoughts about our show today, about Blood Quantum, on our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages. Our handle is 180099NATIVE, and you can call us right now to join today's discussion. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99NATIVE. And we're speaking right now with Joe Nelson at Sea Alaska. And Joe, you're describing here uh, this change there in, in how... Uh, Shareholders will be determined at Sea Alaska. And I just wanted to ask you, um, how can Sea Alaska make this decision separate from the Alaska Native, Native Claims Settlement Act? You mentioned that briefly. Because Does, doesn't that dictate enrollment to some degree, uh, ANSA? Yeah, it definitely did set up our, our framework and where we were created by an act of Congress, ANSA. But we had to amend Inksa. So there, there was a, an effort back in the 80s to uh, amend Inksa to allow us to enroll descendants and elders and left outs and uh, give them additional stock. So we, we definitely have to make the laws work for us. So we, we're regularly fine-tuning those laws when we need to. So what's been the response from existing shareholders? You know, it's... Uh, for the, for the most part, this, this is it's been positive because this wasn't uh, something that we we brought necessarily to the, the shareholders cold. It, we it's been an issue for the entirety of our existence. And when we originally opened the, the rules to descendants in a vote in 2007, uh, we knew this issue. We, we we actually talked about this issue back then. And, and we decided not to address it then. Let's just go ahead and open the rules to descendants and maintain a blood quantum, knowing we were going to cross this bridge uh, in the next generation or so. And uh, we decided to go ahead and do it because shareholders really, um, you know, it was the right thing to do. So, so I, the response on the whole has been positive. There, there's definitely shareholders, um, plenty who were not in favor uh, of doing it. But that, that's the power of, you know, these, these entities, I guess, is, is, uh, and all of our tribal people is we're collectivist and we, we, we make decisions and find ways to move forward. And this one is one that we um, are very thankful that a majority of our shareholders voted to include all our grandparents, I mean, all their grandkids, not, not just some of them. And those shareholders that were not in favor, you mentioned it, it was a few, not a, not a majority, but what was their main issue with changing the blood quantum requirement, removing it? The, the main issue is about the, the, the dilution uh, and the dilution of the dividends and the, you know, the voting. But as we've noticed, it's not, it's not huge and we're able to grow the company. Um, and then, for, for me, I actually had a struggle with myself. You know, we all wrestle with these issues. The, the, the blood quantum issue won't affect, you know, my, my kids or my grandkids because, you know, my, their uh, well, parents are, are native. It, it might when it gets down to the great-grandkid level. Well, I, I get it. I really wrestled with it myself. Um, but it was the, the inclusiveness uh, and just trying to get us all on a healing journey and on a growth mindset rather than a deficit mindset. And, and uh, our descendants are actually, when we're talking about descendants, we're not talking about kids uh, anymore, really. We're, we're talking about adults from 18 to 50 years old now. Um, 
and they're they're actually running our company. Most of our shareholders who are working for us are descendants. Uh, so it, it's really an unnecessary wedge. So to to remove this uh, barrier really is a, a big step collectively towards our healing uh, to move this colonial shackle and and just move forward and, and start our uh, you know, running these companies as as the native companies that they are. Well, speaking of the colonial shackle you mentioned, I mean, before ANCSA, what, 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 how was enrollment determined for Alaska Natives? Yeah, it's, you know, another act of Congress was a big part of it with the Indian Reorganization Acts and, and the IRA governments for the tribes. And Alaska has, you know, its own unique history with all these things because, uh, Treaty making was ended before, you know, before the Americans made their way to, to Alaska here. So we didn't have a, a treaty negotiation as an option. Um, but, you know, to, today we, we do have 229 federally recognized tribes uh, and they, they're, uh, they're, they're a force and they're on the front lines and all of our villages taking care of our, our people. So the, uh, for us, I, I would say, Going back way back when, uh, in the 60s, 70s, we, we, we probably weren't wrapped around the axle as much worried about blood quantum. It was just if you're living in the village, you're, you're part of the village and the tribe's taking care of you. So it's uh, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. definitely an issue, though, that we're going to you know, continue to have to wrestle with. I, I, I remember, I, I would totally agree. I think we're about the same age and I can, rem- I don't really remember people fussing that much one way or the other or talking too much about blood quantum until like the eighties is when I really remember that issue really gaining a lot of steam and, and at least in, in my native community. We're speaking with, with Joe Nelson and he is uh board chair for Sea Alaska. If you've got a question for Joe, learn more about what's going on up there with Sea Alaska and their, their decision to remove blood quantum as a requirement for shareholders. Holders, give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that's 1-800-996-2848. Let's bring another guest into the show now. Joining us from Duluth, Minnesota, is Dr. Jill Dorfler. She is the professor and department head of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota, Duluth. She is White Earth Anishinaabe. Jill, welcome back to Native America Calling. Thanks so much for having me. Jill, if you could help us out here with some historical context, can we start with a reminder of, of how blood quantum first started? Where did that idea come from? Yes, perfect, Sean. Thank you. The, one of the most important things to remember about blood quantum is it's not an, an indigenous concept at all. It's a concept that really dates back to the 1700s or so, Euro-American, European ideas of of race, racial hierarchy, eugenics, and the idea that somehow an individual's identity could literally be quantified. Um, and so then that concept got used by the U.S. government in a variety of ways over time, um, in particular really to dispossess Native people of, of land and other resources. And then, as was already touched upon, it kind of came in for tribes after the 1930s Indian Reorganization Act. 
tribes had not been using blood quantum as a criteria for belonging. We didn't have card sharing enrollment, uh, you know, really until the 20th century, but it, it really wasn't used amongst tribes as a criteria for belonging until we get the influence of the U.S. government and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so for um, the tribe that we're going to touch on a little bit, the Minnesota Chippewa tribe, they did not adopt a blood quantum requirement until 1961. And that was after about 20 years or so of pressure from the Bureau of Indian Affairs to adopt a blood quantum requirement. Um, Elected leaders had passed a number of resolutions requiring lineal descent and had really passionate conversations about enrollment and some of the same things we heard Joe talk a little bit about already, inclusion of children and grandchildren. We had elected leaders in the Minnesota Chippewa tribe talking about that and being concerned about that in the 40s and 50s. And yet, because of a threat of termination, the Minnesota Chippewa tribe did adopt a blood quantum requirement, one quarter Minnesota Chippewa tribe blood as a requirement for enrollment in 1961. Okay, 1961. So let's go ahead and click ahead and and let's talk more specifically about Minnesota Chippewa tribes. Members voted recently in favor of eliminating the blood quantum requirement. This is an advisory referendum, as I understand it. Uh, So what's next? Yeah, so this it's it's very interesting. Uh, We've never had an advisory vote at all. This is the first time the Minnesota Chippewa tribe has done something like this. Blood quantum is something that, as as Joe mentioned, in a lot of ways has been controversial since it was adopted. So um, there's been ongoing conversations about this over the last number of years. Now it's back into the hands of the elected officials and they will decide whether there should be a secretarial election the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe Constitution requires a secretarial election in order to change the Constitution. And so there were two questions before voters in this advisory referendum. One, should the blood quantum requirement be removed from the membership requirements of the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe? And the second question was, should the six-member reservations or bands of the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe be authorized to determine their own membership requirements by band ordinance? And so both of those passed with a a strong yes um, in favor of both, but yet they're a little bit conflicting. So it's not clear to me whether elected leadership will embark upon just changing the requirement for the Minnesota Chippewa tribe or whether they will embark upon a constitutional amendment that would allow each of the six member reservations to to determine their own membership. Since the inception of the Minnesota Chippewa tribe, there has always been one constitution that all six bands or nations have governed under a single um, so there's a big question remaining. 
Now, Jill, what led up to this, uh, this advisory referendum vote? So the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe has been engaged in constitutional reform in various efforts up and down, I would say, over the last 25 years or so. And over the last five or more years, there's been a effort to look at the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe Constitution and think about updating it in a way that would be more effective and appropriate for the contemporary ways in which the government operates. And, and that includes uh, membership or enrollment. And I think in my conversations with some of those constitutional delegates, a lot of people have felt that this question about enrollment was among the more controversial things that they've been talking about. And so they really wanted to sort of have an advisory vote, really allow the current enrolled citizens to be able to make their voice heard. And so that's what this was an opportunity to do. And there was um, just shy of 7,500 ballots cast. Um, there would need to be a stronger participation if the Minnesota Chippewa tribe decides to go with a secretarial election. If that were to be the case, they would need to get at least one third of those eligible uh, voters uh, participating. They didn't quite hit that threshold here, but in all honesty, I thought the turnout was really good for a non-binding uh, referendum. Now, earlier I asked Joe, uh, you know, how many people now could potentially become shareholders at Sea Alaska, and he mentioned a pretty high number, but said it would be significantly lower than that, at least for the first few years. And I'm curious there, uh, with among the Minnesota Chippewa, um, how many potential new tribal members or band members could you folks be seeing here if this ultimately becomes, uh, if this passes? Yeah, if this eventually passes, um, I think the potential could be really large. And it's the same question uh, that Joe talked about. Well, while there might be a lot who are eligible, the question really is how many are going to choose um, to enroll? And what will that process for enrollment look like? What will the qualifications be? Um, we don't know yet what the qualifications might be, so it's hard to say who might be eligible until we have that sort of nailed down. But because the Minnesota Chippewa Tribe has had blood quantum since the 1960s, there are lots of people, and myself included, I should acknowledge that my mom is enrolled as a member at White Earth Nation, where I grew up. I am not enrolled. I do not meet the blood quantum requirement. I'm in my 40s. There's a lot of people uh, my age who don't meet that requirement that would be interested in enrollment. How many people are going to take the actual time to go through the paperwork would remain to be seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. So, um, and are you hearing some of the same pushback that, that Joe described? Some people are concerned about dilution and and what are some of the people that are that are against this saying? Yeah, I do think uh, 
um, so the Minnesota Chippewa tribe is six bands or six nations governing under a single constitution, kind of a unique situation. Some of those bands do have a per capita payment and many do not. And so you can imagine there is definitely a difference between those tribes that do have a per capita payment and those that don't. And for those that, that do have a per capita payment, we do see a question, uh, a concern. Well, as, as what Joe mentioned, if we add more names to the roles, does that then uh, reduce the amount of the per capita payment um, concerns about resources overall, I think really dominate when it comes to those people who wanna see blood quantum maintained. And I think the real key, if the tribe moves forward um, with some other requirements beyond, instead of blood quantum, the real key is to be sure that we're always helping people understand that citizenship or enrollment it is one thing and services and entitlements, while those things are of course connected to citizenship, those are different. Those services and entitlements, uh, various programs that each of the six different bands okay. run. Jill, I'm All sorry, we're gonna have to go to a break, but I will let you continue your thoughts. We'll be right back. With over 40,000 organizations trying to help military veterans, it can be hard to find the right information. That's why AARP brings together valuable resources to help navigate veterans' options, including no-charge veteran employment and fraud prevention resources, caregiving tools, and access to discounts. AARP is on a mission to support veterans. More at aarp.org veterans. AARP supports this program. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about blood quantum and efforts by a handful of tribes to eliminate it as a requirement for shareholders or tribal enrollees. Still time to get in our conversation. We're at 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that's 1-800-996-2848. Give us a call. Producers are standing by. We're speaking right now with Dr. Jill Dorfler. She's Department Head of American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Jill, before we went to break, uh, I had asked you about you know pushback and, and folks that, that, that weren't on board with this referendum, this recent advisory referendum to remove the blood quantum requirement for enrollment with Minnesota Chippewa. And you mentioned that some of the bands receive per cap and there's been some pushback there. But I'm also curious to know, and so many tribes, I think, and uh, in my own tribe, I can tell you, for for instance, there is, I, I think, a, a trend to, I think a lot of times we look at, at blood quantum in terms of identity, that blood quantum and per, whatever it is, whatever percentage it is, it, a lot of us as Native people tend to look at that as as a benchmark for our Native identity. And I'm curious there at Minnesota Chippewa, do, are you getting any pushback or feedback with regard to how it impacts folks, not necessarily with regard to entitlements or distributions or per capita or benefits, but specifically with identity of being a Minnesota Chippewa tribal member? Um, we, I, I do occasionally hear arguments about that are people who feel that blood quantum is uh, 
it maybe works in the way that it was originally conceived of uh, by Europeans as a sort of measure uh, of someone's identity. Um, it gets a little tricky because we all know, we don't hear a lot of that, I think, because so many people know people with different blood quantums and they see that that doesn't correlate with somebody's um, loyalty or participation in ceremonies or desire to learn the language or all of those things, they don't ever end up matching up with blood quantum. So sometimes we hear those arguments, but I would say not very loudly. Okay. All right. We've got a caller now, Michael, listening on KNBA in Anchorage, Alaska. Michael, thanks for calling us today. Yes, thank you for uh, taking my phone call. Excuse the background noise. If there's any noise, I'm at a payphone. But I have uh, the the blood quantum. uh, One thing about the Alaska Native Land Claims Settlement Act. Oops. Well, unfortunately, we just lost Michael there on a payphone, and I was wondering there, geez, it's been a long time since I've talked to somebody on a payphone, and, and maybe that's why. Maybe they're not working so well these days. At any rate, sorry about that, Michael. Maybe we can get you back on later in the show. And uh, let's go back to, to Jill Dorfler and, um, you know, speaking here about Minnesota Chippewa, and you mentioned uh, the, the enrollment issue and, and, and some of the just some of the issues that are surrounding that and some of the feedback that you're getting there from band members and tribal members. And um, so how, how far, you know, again, this is an advisory referendum. So what do you think are, are the chances that this will actually go through? You mentioned that there's two processes here or two things around the referendum, just uh, the blood quantum requirement and then also uh, allowing the six individual bands to determine for themselves what enrollment is in those bands. What's the likelihood, do you think, in the next, before the end of the year that these are going to pass? Oh, definitely not before the end of the year. This is a multi-year process. I, I do not think that there's going to be any kind of quick action on this. Um, the current elected leadership put out a statement prior to the vote, clarifying, emphasizing that it's only advisory Unfortunately, there was some confusion, uh, probably because they've never had an advisory vote before. So really clarifying that it was advisory and being very clear that this is just advisory, just a potential first step to maybe guide the current elected leadership in a decision of whether or not to pursue making any changes. Um, So... If they decide to pursue making changes, that means a secretarial election. There's no way, in my personal opinion, that would ever happen yet this year. That would be at least a year out, I think. Looks like we have Michael back on the line. Michael, are you there listening in Anchorage, Alaska? Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the blood quantum up, up here in Alaska, you know, it... it uh, um, I'm for it, but uh, the last Native Land Claims Settlement Act, they excluded the children born after 1971. And I talked to the president of Alaska Federation of Natives, Julie Kicka, about that. And uh, she said if the children would fight for the Native corporations like we did, then they, the Native corporations would have no choice but to back them up. So realistically, 
the state of Alaska still belongs to the tribes. And uh, so I, I, you know, I, I think they need to, uh, the, the blood quantum, uh, I think we need to have a, we need to have a powwow, a tr- international, a national tribal powwow. And there's a lot of questions that, that pertains to that. So have a good day. Well, Michael, thank you for, for calling in. Sure do appreciate that. I'm going to give Joe Nelson a, a chance to respond to that. Joe, Michael mentions that uh, young people today aren't necessarily fighting as hard for the Alaska Native corporations as previous generations. What's your thought on that? Yeah, I actually appreciated that call, especially since it came through a, a payphone. Uh, that, <laughs> that was awesome. Uh, you know, there, there is a layer here of complexity that's unnecessarily complex for folks in the sense of uh, these corporations uh, they have been around since 71. Uh, Inks uh, didn't eliminate, you know, our, our tribes. We do have tribes, uh, as we mentioned earlier, and so all of our communities, we generally have a municipality, a tribe, and a corporation. They all need to figure out how to work together. We're all serving the same people. Uh, and just, for, you know, I can speak mostly to, to Southeast, but uh, there's, for us, one of the things that helped us at Sea Alaska go ahead and take this to our shareholders was the fact that Clinkett and Haida, uh, our large regional tribe, they did this some time ago. They, 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 they're... Um, run by enrollment is uh, lineal descent. So it was, uh, we're not forging new ground here, I guess. Um, and then the comment on the, the descendants um, needing to be more, take a more active stance. Uh, I, I would say there's, there's an element of truth to that. And so a lot of them, uh, actually, all you need is one share. So if you can find a grandparent or, or a uh, you know, a parent or an aunt or an uncle to gift you just one share. That's all you need to make your way into the into the shareholder meetings and even on to the boardroom. Uh, so one share. I, I would say there's no the truth there. Yeah. Well, Joe, thanks for coming on the show today and, and giving us all this insight and background up there at Sea Alaska. And also Dr. Jill Dorfler as well. Really appreciate all your insights with regard to what's happening up there in Minnesota. And at this point, I would like to switch gears and take a moment to talk about someone who is very important to Native journalism that we just lost. Among other things, Tim Gago founded the Lakota Times, the first independent Native newspaper in the United States. The publication went on to become an in the country today. And today we have Levi Ricker, who's publisher and editor of Native News Online and Tribal Business News. He's a member of the Prairie Band of Potawatomi Nation. And he knew Tim Gayago, and he joins us now. Levi, hello. Hello, good afternoon. Levi, Tim was known for being fierce and fearless, holding people accountable. What are some of the things you remember about him? Well, I... I, I... We don't like to use the word pioneer as Native people per se, but he definitely was a pathfinder in in terms of setting the tone for modern-day Native American journalism. And that's one of the things I think is going to be his legacy is the fact that he he really was there. He said he was fierce, and and he wouldn't hold back. And and sometimes he rubbed people the wrong way, but I think all journals are like that. And but but So those are the kind of things I remember. And his legacy is... He, he was he was right there. He was the pathfinder for us. 
the Pathfinder. Well, I'm, I'm interested in learning more about how he was received by tribal leaders and others, because he certainly had a lot of friends out there in Native America, but he also, he made some enemies along the way. And I'll tell you, here at Native America Calling, we were on the receiving end of, of some of his criticism. So overall, what, what was the response for Tim there across Native America? Well, I think what, what happens is, and I think it's maybe indicative of people who've been oppressed we don't always like criticism, and, and so there were times he was critical of, of leadership among those in Indian country. But but you know when it's all said and done, he did a, he did his job as a journalist, and that that to me is what is important. Why did he think there needed to be a news source independent of tribal influence? Well, I think it's it's, it's sometimes if you look at just tribal politics in themselves. And, and, um, you know they they can be pretty pretty treacherous in terms of 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 who gets elected and and for whatever there again indicative of people been oppressed we we just we have this lateral oppression and we sometimes go at each other's throats but in in you know independent from a tribe itself it's so important for for Native American publications to exist to really really balance out what's going on and sift through those tribal politics and, and really tell the story as accurate as we possibly can. And that's what Tim tried to achieve during his lifetime. What was the native media landscape like when the Lakota time started? Well, you know, actually it was before my time, but, but cause, cause native news alive, I'm only in my 12th year, but what, what it, I, I, I just remember some of the tribal newspapers and we have, we have progressed in Indian country and, and with the digital age and everything else, and else, and that that's what happened with Lakota Times. You know, uh, Indian Country Today uh, posted a story the other day about how literally his nieces and nephews helped distribute the newspapers to the tribal offices and get them to buy it. And that that in itself is like groundbreaking. It, it's it's really difficult to start something. And then to keep it going is, is, is just as is, is, um, is, uh, complicated sometimes because we change so fast, especially in media. And he's able to change with some of the times and maybe a little slower than he should have. But, you know, just, just to get to where, where he was and he worked basically up almost to the day he died. Um, I understand he died of cancer, but it was, it was, you know, you have to admire somebody who was 88 still working for on behalf of Native American journalism. Well, the Lakota Times was the first independent native newspaper in the United States. And, and since that time, there have been many more. And people like Tim are, are to thank for that. These independent journalistic uh, sources that we have all over Native America. But there are also uh, a lot of, of tribal news media sources that are not independent. They're still um, either owned by tribes or they're very much controlled by tribes. How do you think, Tim, what, what did you feel about that in terms of... Um, so many independent papers, but yet then there are some that are still not. Well, and I think that's that's the beauty of what Tim achieved is the fact that independent from those tribes that obviously if you're working for a tribe, basically they're going to want you to follow their, their as, they, as they say in politics, party line or tribal line. They're, they're going to, how they want it to be presented in the news. The independent uh news sources such as native news online we're, we're independent we we can print it 
as we see fit. And and that's not to say, you know, uh, in, at Native News Online, we don't try to blatantly go after tribes. That's not what we're about. But it, but it is that, that, that independence that allows us to really write the way, write things as, as a, the old line, the freedom of the press. And that, to me, is critical. And Tim saw that, and that's why one of the reasons he started the Lakota Times is the idea that he could, he could, and in this, it grew in the Indian country today on a national level. You even write differently from from <clears throat> tribal, regional, and then when you get to the national level, you have to view things from maybe a different lens and say, how does this impact Native Americans overall? Mm-hmm. Well, Tim certainly kept his his hands busy his whole life. You mentioned he was still very, very involved uh, up until his his passing at the age of 88. What other accomplishments is he known for in addition to the Lakota Times and all of his accomplishments in journalism? Well, you know, when he started the first, um, it was was the organization that preceded the National or the Native American Journalist Association, but what was it, the Native American Journal? I can't remember the name of it right now, but I'm embarrassed. But, uh, you know, he started that. And so he, he had that vision that Native American journalists needed to come together and have a place that they could share ideas, share their frustrations, uh, share their concerns, but work together collectively as Native American journalists. And in, in, in the big picture, there's, we, we are really a small, small part of journalism and Tim saw that vision that collectively we could become a force and that was really the important thing mm-hmm. well it's uh it's just <clears throat> so monumental there again Tim Gallego passing away at the age of 88 the founder of the Lakota Times uh, the first independent native newspaper in the United States and we just heard from Levi Rickert He's a publisher and editor of Native News Online, sharing his thoughts, sharing his memories, sharing his insights into the life and legacy of Tim Gallego. Well, folks, uh, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for our show today. So, again, our guests, Joe Nelson, Dr. Jill Dorfler, and Levi Rickert, thank you all for joining us and sharing your insights and perspectives on a number of issues today. Join us again on Native America Calling tomorrow. We wrap up our Through the Decade series as we take a look back at what's often called the good decade, the 1990s. I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe. I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to him that your grandpa's not going to be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. CMS program. Local Indian health care provider, Kaisa Kangwa, Siturumyasi, healthcare.ga, Nakakilanu, 1 800 Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service Kunin.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.